0: Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 280, King Athelstan's Love Life. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at the BritishHistoryPodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Dina, Andrew, and Prashan for signing up already. Also, thank you to the person who bought me a drink at the pub the other night. Uh, You didn't come over and say hi, but you should've, and that was kind of neat. I suddenly felt weirdly like a celebrity, which never happens to me, so thanks. Alright, on with the show. What is a king's most important duty? Is it the defense of the realm? Or perhaps the growth of the kingdom's borders? What about the development of the economy? Or fostering strong diplomatic alliances? Perhaps it's shepherding the souls of his subjects to Christ, or maybe just keeping his subjects happy and healthy. When it comes down to it, there are a lot of responsibilities that come with the crown, so it's a bit daunting to choose which one is the most important. But if I had to pick, and I suppose I do since I was the one who posed the question in the first place, I'd say that the most important duty of a king in this era was to create an heir and preferably a few spares. If you're a king and you don't have a legitimate heir, all manner of problems can arise. I mean, it could even lead to a bunch of French-speaking Vikings declaring war. So the number one thing that I think a medieval king needed to do was get married to a suitable lady and then have several sons with her as fast as possible. And so you would assume that Athelstan, who began his reign by arranging marriages for his siblings to powerful dukes and kings, would have also been working on arranging a marriage for himself. But you'd be wrong. And this is one of the enduring mysteries of Athelstan, and it's something that's puzzled historians for centuries. Here we have a king who would prove to be remarkably effective, and yet he also happened to fail at one of his most important duties, if not his most important duty, making tiny future kings. It's a genuine mystery. And like all mysteries there are several theories that attempt to solve why this happened. The first theory is that Athelstan didn't die childless at all, that he, in fact, did become a father in his lifetime, and that there might have even been a legitimate marriage behind it. And that theory is actually backed up with some textual evidence. The first is in the Liber Eliensis, which is a 12th century chronicle. And in it, we're told of Athida Felis Regis Athelstani which translates to Athada daughter of King Athelstan. And if there's a daughter of King Athelstan, that doesn't sound like he died childless. But we don't hear of her in any other record. Why might that be? Well, it could be a typo or an error in the historical record or any number of things. Most importantly, it pops up about 200 years after the reign of Athelstan. And that's a little late for first-person sightings. But on the other hand, we know that there were children who were born outside of what West Saxon society considered legitimate. Athelstan very well might have been one of these children. So that's led some scholars to suggest that Athelstan might have had a daughter. And to that theory, I'll say this. I don't think it's impossible, but I do think it's implausible. Other scholars say, well, what if there was a legitimate marriage? And they raise this because there's another piece of textual evidence towards Athelstan's love life, and it's found in the record of prayers that were said in St. John's Chapel at Malmesbury. See, at some point, some scribes decided to write down what prayers were being said in this chapel, and they recorded that there were some people who were praying to a woman named Maud, who was said to be the wife of Athelstan. Now by the time that the scribes wrote these prayers down, people had been praying to the wife of Athelstan for about a couple hundred years, which is really interesting. But we run into the same problem that we ran into with Athelstan's alleged daughter. The scribes who were writing down these prayers were writing in the 14th century. And since they've been doing it for a couple hundred years, that means that like the Liber Eliensis, this prayer to Maud started in the 12th century which was long after Athelstan had died. So this record could be evidence, but it also could just reflect a 12th century legend rather than the actual reality of Athelstan's life. And those two records comprise the entirety of the evidence for Athelstan having actually had a child or a wife. The fact is that there's no record of Athelstan marrying, nor is there any contemporary record of him having children. And when Athelstan died, the throne passed to his half-brother, rather than to any child of his. And there's no record of any sort of insurgency by rival claimants, no one coming along later and claiming to be his descendant. Other than a couple weird notes that don't appear until hundreds of years later, all the evidence points to Athelstan failing to carry out what I consider to be his most important duty, to provide a legitimate heir. So, this leaves us to ponder the other theories. Basically, why didn't he do it? And one theory was that Athelstan was actually homosexual. And this one is fairly common in the literature. And to be honest, just based on a level of probability, it very well might have been the case. In the last century, surveys have found that anywhere between 2 and 10% of the population is homosexual. And given that statistic and how many kings we have, it would be genuinely weird if we didn't have a few gay kings. And combining that knowledge with the fact that Athelstan never appears to marry a woman or have any children, well, it seems like we might have a slam-dunk case. But what about the other evidence? Is there anything else that historians point to to suggest that Athelstan was gay? Well, one piece of evidence that's presented by some historians are the witness lists and other documents from the era during Athelstan's reign. Specifically, they point to how many male names are in these documents, And sure enough, if you go to Athelstan-era charters, you're gonna find more sausage than you can shake a bun at. And that might be suggestive of something if it wasn't for the fact that literally every witness list for all of Anglo-Saxon everything was pretty much a sausage fest. Anglo-Saxon women were thoroughly relegated to non-public and disempowered social roles. And so a woman's name showing up in a charter is worthy of note virtually every single time it appears. And so if we're looking at witness lists and we're saying if there's a lot of male names in there, this king must be homosexual, then that means that pretty much all Anglo-Saxon kings were on the down low. And so I'm not convinced by this charter theory. There's another bit of evidence that some older scholars have presented that is a bit suspect. But because it's possible that some of you have already heard about it, I probably need to talk about it. And the theory is this, that Athelstan fostered several young boys in his court, and therefore he might have been gay. That's their evidence. And they're hinging it all on a simple jump of logic that the presence of young boys in court means that the king must be gay. It's absurd, and it's also an offensive accusation. And all I can say about this is that that argument says far more about the culture of the scholars than anything about Athelstan or his culture. And we're going to get back to those boys in a little bit, But I actually think that their presence and their relationship with Athelstan speaks volumes about who he was as a person and what his character was like. And I think it says a lot of positive things. And none of it has anything to do with whether or not he was gay. So honestly, I think those two arguments are kind of garbage. And I think the young boy's theory is total garbage. But if those aren't the kind of evidence that we would expect to find if Athelstan was actually homosexual, and if this was the cause behind his lack of legitimate heirs then what kind of evidence would we be looking for? Well, one potential bit of evidence would be the remnants of rumors. People talk. A lot. Even if nothing is going on of note, people want to be all up in your business, and they want to make sure that everyone else knows about whatever they think is going on. It's a pretty consistent people thing. And even today, especially 10 or 20 years ago, sexuality is a thing that people talk about. And take it from a guy who's always liked to do crafts, was a sensitive child, has long hair, and is still super into poetry. People get theories, and they talk about them, even if it's not true. So, if Athelstan was gay, I'm pretty sure people would have been talking. Specifically, I would expect that people would be talking to the church. And the church would have taken that talk really seriously. And we know this, because a little over a hundred years from Athelstan's reign, we have records of the church having a conniption fit over how pointy William Rufus's shoes were. Just as shoes. So the point, or the pointy shoes of all of this, is that if Athelstan was on whatever the medieval version of grinder was, like Athelgrinder, well, I think people would find out. And they would have talked. And you might remember that people and the church have gotten into people's sexuality in the past. Athelbald of Mercia got denounced for raiding nunneries. Athelbald of Wessex got busted for marrying his stepmom. People weren't turning a blind eye to stuff like this. They would have talked. And if you're thinking, well, sure, but our records suck. So even if people knew, that doesn't mean that we would get it in the record. Well, that's a fair comment. But there's a problem with that. See, the church during this period was down on the gay. Like, really down on it like way worse than your uncle after a few drinks at Christmas. And yet, Athelstan was the darling of the church. Furthermore, Athelstan had enemies. Enemies that tried to blind him already. So being a man who romantically preferred men in the medieval period would have been the perfect political ammunition for those who wished to unseat him. And yet still, no evidence of such rumors have survived to today. So given this lack of specific evidence... I think it's irresponsible to firmly conclude that Athelstan's lack of an heir was due to him being homosexual. Furthermore, there's another problem with that theory, which is that we do have historical royal figures who were known or at least rumored to have been homosexual. And due to the importance of producing heirs, they still entered marriages and produced children. So the lack of marriage and children can't be interpreted as hard evidence of being gay, Any more than having a marriage and children should be interpreted as evidence that someone is straight. And the truth is, if Athelstan's lack of heirs was a result of his sexuality, the more likely scenario would be that it was because he was celibate. And that could still mean that he was gay. It would just mean that he wasn't acting on it. Or at least, not often. But it also could mean that he was into women, or men and women, or potentially that he wasn't into anyone, But regardless of what he was doing, he chose to remain celibate during this time. And that choice could have been interpreted and could have been intended to be an act of piety and a dedication to spiritual life. And that would explain the lack of heirs and the popularity with the church. It's hard to know for sure. And here's another theory about Athelstan's lack of children in marriage. And this one doesn't have anything to do with his sexual or spiritual preferences. It might've been about politics. The fact is that athelstan's rise to power was difficult and he had some very dangerous enemies enemies that remained powerful in their own right and enemies that didn't go away simply because he was now on the throne for example the bishop of winchester refused to attend athelstan's coronation and didn't appear in athelstan's early charters and that's not a good sign because the bishop of winchester was an influential person looking at the record athelstan might have been popular in Mercia. But the other half of his kingdom wessex seemed to have been giving him a frosty reception so while athelstan appears to have been working overtime to make the right friends with dynasties up in northumbria and across the channel and he seems to have been doing all the right things diplomatically to tie him to the movers and shakers on the world stage back at home especially in wessex he was in a bit of a pickle there were major factions within wessex including factions in the politically powerful seat of winchester that didn't want him there. And there were factions that felt that he was ineligible to rule, were loyal to his half-siblings, and who were conspiring against him and against his right to have eyes. The fact that Athelstan couldn't escape was that for the powerful people of Wessex, he had the wrong mom, he was raised in the wrong kingdom, and, well, they just didn't like his face. So dealing with that sort of opposition and really was a significant amount of opposition. I mean, Athelstan notably avoided Wessex for large portions of his reign for this reason. Well, the new king might have been looking for ways to tackle that issue diplomatically. And as we've spoken about in earlier episodes, marriage was a very powerful diplomatic tool. So one possibility is that Athelstan didn't marry because he was dangling the possibility of marriage in front of the various powerful dynasties like a carrot. If a marriage was always a possibility, then it behooved the dynasties to behave nicely in court, because they might be the lucky one. Conversely, if he actually married someone, then suddenly there'd be a bunch of dynasties, many of whom already didn't like him, who would feel personally slighted. Marriage was a minefield for a king like Athelstan, so he might have just tried to avoid it. Another possibility is that Athelstan was placing the kingdom over his personal desires. The next in line to the throne was his half-brother, Edwin. He was the son of Edward and Elfled. And then after him were the two sons by Edward's third wife, Edgifu. Their names were Edmund and Adred. So providing that Athelstan didn't have any kids, the dynasties of Elfled and Edgifu had a chance to have one of their own on the throne. But that only would happen if Athelstan didn't have any legitimate children. So it's possible that in order to keep the peace and to keep these powerful West Saxon dynasties in check, Athelstan made a concession. He wouldn't marry. And therefore, once he died, the throne would go to his eldest living half-brother. And that certainly could explain the lack of marriage and children. It would also explain why Edwin, Edmund, and Adred were all members of Athelstan's court. It's not something we'll ever know for sure, but if I had to make a bet, I'd say that this decision was political. After all, everything that we've seen about Athelstan shows us a man who possessed a shrewd political mind and a stalwart character. So that's my perspective on the mystery. But the funny thing is that he did have children. They just weren't his own. Athelstan fostered numerous children throughout his life. And much like the dynastic cults, the medieval form of fostering isn't something we really do anymore. And that isn't to say that foster parents don't exist. They do. But the context and reality of foster parenting is very different. Fostering children in the early medieval world of Germanic and Celtic families was common. But it wasn't for developmental reasons or ensuring that children had a healthy home. Rather, foster children typically already had homes, wealthy homes, but they were being fostered nonetheless because they were being used as a diplomatic tool. Fostering children solidified and reinforced bonds between aristocratic families and helped ensure that those in power stayed in power. Basically, it made it easier for allied kingdoms to work together. And so if you read accounts of courtly life during this era, it's not uncommon to hear about people who were fostered in this or that court. And Athelstan fostered more children than most. The court of Athelstan was full of children. Some were exiles, others were traditional fosterlings. And they were there pretty much from day one. See, the thing is that Athelstan's father, Edward, had a lot of children. And when he died and Athelstan took the throne, he left behind some pretty young kids. Particularly, Edmund and Adred were still babies when Edward died. And so Athelstan, upon taking the crown at about the age of 30, suddenly became the guardian of his two very young half-brothers. And they weren't the only children who needed his protection. Across the channel, a political crisis had been raging in West Francia. And in 923, it came to a head when King Charles the Simple was captured and deposed by Margrave Robert, who became King Robert. And for Athelstan, this was more than just a casual political problem that he was watching happening in one of his neighboring kingdoms. Because Charles the Simple was married to Athelstan's half-sister, Aed Gifu, and she had only recently had a child with Charles, who they named Louis. And a kingdom that was so upset with Charles that they imprisoned and dethroned him wasn't exactly the safest place for his heir to be raised. And that's how young Louis ended up in Athelstan's court. And Louis at this point was only about two or three years old, which made him about the same age as Edmund and Adred. Now, as for what Queen Agifu did, that's still a subject for debate. Many assume that she would have accompanied her son and went home to Wessex upon her husband's capture. However, historian Janet Nelson suggests that she only sent her son there for safekeeping, and she stayed in Francia to be close to her husband, only returning to Wessex when, spoiler alert, Charles died in captivity in 929. And it didn't stop there. Count Mathodois, who was the grandson of King Alan the Great of Brittany, had been under increasing pressure from invading Viking fleets. And it became so great that he decided to renounce his claims on the throne of Brittany and bail on the area entirely. So he gathered up his son, Alan, and fled to the court of Wessex, probably before Athelstan even took the throne. And because of his father's renunciation, young Alan, who was probably just an adolescent at this point, now had a claim to the throne of Brittany. So that's another kid living in Athelstan's court. And it didn't stop there. Based on non-contemporary records and other supporting documents, it looks like Hakon, the son of King Harald Fairhair of Norway, was sent to be raised as a foster child of Athelstan, as a part of a diplomatic agreement between the two kingdoms. And Hakon, like Edmund, Adred, and Louis, would have been a toddler at this point in his life. So that means that right at the start of Athelstan's reign, his court was home for at least four noble toddlers. And amazingly, all four toddlers will eventually become kings. And as for young Alan, who was probably only a tween when Athelstan took the throne, he would become Duke Alan II of Brittany. And this right here is why parents are so obsessed with getting their kids into the right school. But the truth is, looking at all of this... These kids were clearly more than just political wards. Looking at the record, Athelstan held a lot of personal affection for them. And evidence suggests that he was a true foster father. And all indications are that he was quite close with these children. Edmund and Adred stayed close with Athelstan throughout his lifetime, even fighting alongside him in battle. And we're going to see going forward that this wasn't just for his half-siblings. Both Louis and Alan were also close to Athelstan. And the record indicates that they weren't just exiles living in Athelstan's court. They were specifically his foster children. Furthermore, Alan and Hakon, unlike the rest of their foster brothers, didn't share any blood ties with Athelstan. And yet, we see in the record that Athelstan sought to build those ties. And he did this through religion. Remember how, during this era, the relationship between godparents and godchild were seen as at least equal to, if not superior to, blood ties? Well, Athelstan noticed that, and so he stood godfather to Alan and Hakon's baptisms. And thus, the problem was solved. The two boys were now family, just like the rest of their foster brothers. Even the sagas talk about how it was Athelstan who converted Hakon to Christianity, And they gave him the nickname Adelstein Foster, Athelstan's fosterling. And while kings acting as godfathers to other kings or king's sons wasn't uncommon, just like fostering wasn't uncommon, and while kings were often willing to offer protection of their court to the nobility, including displaced nobility, the way Athelstan treated his foster children is interesting. Because we're going to see that he wasn't just offering them protection, he was willing to offer them military arms in support of their cause. And this suggests to me a genuine and lasting emotional affection for them, even as they grow into adults. And we're going to see that they share that affection for him as well. So on the one hand, Athelstan didn't have any children that we know of. But on the other hand, he had some of the most successful children in English history, raising four kings and one duke that we know about. But the story of children in Athelstan's court isn't entirely sweet. Like everything else with Athelstan, it requires some nuance. For example, in some later documents, there are records that the son of King Constantine of Scotland might have been kept in King Athelstan's court as a way of keeping the peace. And while you could charitably call that fostering, it was more like hostage keeping. Athelstan was an effective king, and sometimes effective kings play hardball. Now, one thing that might have come out of this episode is that you might have gotten the sense that the only children in Athelstan's court were male, since the only children that we've talked about were male children. And that's because the scribes are only talking about male children. Furthermore, male children were the most likely candidates for a fostering situation. However, I don't think that forecloses the possibility of girls being in his court as well. After all, medieval writers only rarely even acknowledged women, so the fact that we're not seeing writers talking about girls isn't all that surprising. But the record being what it is, it means that the impression that we're given of Athelstan's court is that it was packed to the rafters with noble boys. But whether or not there were girls there as well is something that we're unlikely to ever really know. But here's the assumption that I think you can draw from the presence of all these royal kids in Athelstan's court. I think he was probably patient. And there's something else about this situation that really jumps out at me. Namely, that Athelstan was raising his two youngest half-brothers, who were just babies when their father died. And those boys were now thrust into an alien court and being raised by distant relatives. Which sounds a lot like Athelstan's childhood. And I wonder if he might have been trying to make sure that the boys had a better childhood than he did. And so he made sure they had a lot of friends in court. Also... Looking at the composition of his foster sons, you might have realized that he had a unique opportunity to significantly shape the future of Northwestern Europe. And this strategy might have been another lesson that he learned from Athelflaed. After all, it was Athelflaed who raised him. And that means that even if he was completely mercenary, he was doing something that was incredibly effective. Because fostering these kids meant that he could mold the future kings of England, a king of France, a king of Norway, and the Duke of Brittany but I don't think he was mercenary. Because Edmund, Adred, and Hakon all appear to have remained close to Athelstan throughout his reign. And Edmund and Adred even appear to stay loyal to him even after his death. And so from this angle, I think the record tells a pretty clear story. Athelstan, for reasons unknown, but I suspect it was politics, didn't get married or have a legitimate heir. However, he did foster many of the next generation of monarchs and based on the record of how they all did and their relationship with him. He might not have been a father, but I think he was a pretty good dad. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. You can find us at British Podcast, and you can join all our other communities by going to the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. All right, right about now, you might be expecting a song about fatherhood. But honestly, most of the songs about fatherhood are about bad dads. I mean, check this out. See what I mean? You gotta do better, dads. Otherwise, you to know, your day. kid's gonna start writing lyrics about I you. Still, Thanks for listening.